My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happen to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. This is another interview that we recorded at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, and it's with Simon Collins, who gave the opening address, in order, as he says, to shake us all up a bit. And that he did. With his new platform, Fashion Culture Design, Simon holds what he calls unconferences, where not boring fashion people address topics such as how do you solve a problem like Fashion Week and can sustainability be sexy? Simon is a creative director, an educator and a fashion consultant who describes himself as a creative seditionary. He's not shy, Simon. He likes to provoke and his aim is to move fashion and ideas forward. He's just not complacent or willing to play the game for its own sake. And I love how honest he is. He's also very funny in that singular British way that somehow New York hasn't managed to knock out of him. And he's a design nut. As he points out, almost everything around us is designed and someone designed it. Simon is the ex-dean of the fashion school at Parsons in New York and he was there for seven years, I think, until 2015. At Parsons, he set up design competitions with the likes of Louis Vuitton and Caring. And in his own right, he has worked with heaps of brands, including Nike. He was actually their creative director for Asia Pacific and worked on collabs with the likes of Comme de Garçon. But the bit I love most about this conversation is the nostalgia part. Simon was a mad fashion kid in Bournemouth and London in the 80s. And we talk about what that was like and how he dressed and how he got his first kiss and making his own outfits and dressing up to go to clubs like Taboo. And those of you who listen to this podcast regularly may remember that we talk about that club and all of the incredible dresses that used to be there, like Lee Bowery and Trojan, in the episodes with Simon Doonan and Stephen Jones. But in this one, we also talk about The Face magazine and just how influential that was to a certain generation of fashion students and how much we miss it. We talk about all the cool stuff and I just love hearing how fashion insiders got their start, their obsessions and how it all translates to the work they do today. 
We also talk about sustainability. What does it really mean and who is responsible for it? The answer, says Simon, is you. <laughs> Told you he's a provocateur. As always, thank you for listening. Please do tell your friends about the Wardrobe Crisis podcast and get in touch on social media. You can find me at Mrs. Press on Instagram and Twitter. And also a big thank you to our new Patreon supporters. I'm so grateful. Also, by the way, Aussies, I've got a few exciting events coming up. I'll be talking at the Peppermint Magazine's Pep Talks in Brisbane on June the 14th with my mate Tim Silverwood, who's from Take Three for the Sea. And that weekend, which is June the 16th, I'm at Sydney's Museum of Contemporary Art sharing my insights on making fashion circular. And that one is part of the Vivid Festival. And it's with Kim and Kath from The Possibility Project, who've also been on this podcast. You can check out my Instagram for details and it will be so great to see you there. We're recording this in your music room, Simon. Yeah, I know. Let me entertain you with some actual vinyl. Listen to the sound of me putting a record on. Whoa. Look at that. Oh, you remember the days when you could put records on like that and then take them off? We do that at home. We still have records with that analogue. Good for you. We don't even have lights. (laughs) Yeah, right. Where do you live anyway? Inner city, Sydney. You can stop there. Australia. Look, you. You're not an Aussie, though, are you? No. Why'd you end up there? That's, that's awful. I married a surfer. Oh. Oh, he's probably handsome and tan. That's good. He's fabulous. But I'm from Leeds. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that'd get a laugh. Yeah, of course you're from Leeds, so you might as well live in Australia. Anything's up from there. Let's yeah. move on. Yeah. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this podcast in these rather she-she surrounds. In one of my seating areas. Perhaps halfway through we can adjourn to the other one over there. You're obviously an important gentleman in order to have a music room in which to facilitate interviews with the media. I'm definitely not important. So I, have, I can have no explanation whatsoever as to why this is... I'll tell you a story about the sweets, right? This is the luck I have. I went to the Gritty Palace once and I was visiting a factory and the guy said, come see the factory. And I said, oh, I haven't really got time. He said, please come. I'll put you up in the Gritty Palace. I said, all right, fair play. I've never been to Venice. I'll do it. So I get there. In the afternoon, he shows me the factory. He's a lovely, lovely guy. I really like him. Shows me the factory. And then he goes, we'll go for dinner. I said, all right. We have this wonderful dinner in Piazza San Marco. And then I go back to the hotel and the Gritty Palace. And he's mates with the concierge. And the concierge says, I've upgraded you to the suite. So I've got this massive corner suite with you know, marble hallways down to the bar room and like six bathrooms. And the colossal princesses have definitely stayed there, unlike me. But this is the fashion dream. Yeah, but guess what? I get there at 11.30 at night. I have to check out at 5.30 to get my bloody flight. I didn't even see daylight. I walked in, crashed out, got up, got up, went out. These days it wouldn't matter because you could have taken an Instagram photo and then all was done. That would have been the whole point of it, wouldn't it? You're right. You're right. (laughs) We're not here to talk about your fabulous fashion life. We are. But first, the reason that I wanted was because in your opening address at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, you were a provocative. The theme was, it's your fault. Yeah. It raised a laugh out of me, but I also liked it because it is. Oh, hello everybody. Good morning. Uh, I don't feel worthy to be here because um, I just talk. I don't really do anything. You guys are the doers. Um, but there's a few things that drive me crazy and I just thought I'd share them at the beginning of this great event because they might be of some help to you. Now, the first one is, it's all your fault. All the problems we're going to be addressing, all the worthy things that are going to be said are to sort things out. But the fact is, it's your fault. 
And if you go away thinking, well, you know, I saw a lot of worthy things, but you know, the government will take care of them or corporations will take care of them. They're not going to. They're not. It's you. You've got to do it. You've got to say to yourself, all right, I'm going to do something about this. It's me. Can you sum up for the listener? The The listener? The listener. What's his name? Is it Dave? <laughs> Steve. Hello, Dave. All right, mate. <laughs> We've got more than one. Oh, yeah. Oh, John anyway, there as well. Sharp. All right. The listeners. Mm. Could you sum up the yes, point yes, of can. your so, address? So here's the thing, right? I, I used to go to a lot of conferences and I realised they're all tedious and I can't stand them, which is why I launched un, my own conference. Can but, I come and talk at your own conference? Please do. But... Uh, I love Eva Cruz, who organised the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, and I'm very passionate about sustainability, but not perhaps in the way that some other people are, in that I don't really know much about it, but I like provoking people. It's always good to be passionate about something you don't know anything about. Yeah, I'm very good at that. I I make my whole career about it. But the thing is, like, I've got quite good bullshit detector, and I don't like wasting my time. And so whenever I see a conversation or a presentation or any kind of communication, which I think is either bullshit or... Most of it's bullshit and it's wasting my time because you could have conveyed it in five words, not 45 minutes. Then it drives me a bit crazy because I've got children. I love them and I want to spend time with them. I don't want to waste my time listening to someone who's really not, shouldn't be there. So I said to Eva, who I adore, if you want, why don't you let me just have a crack at the audience right at the very beginning and perhaps give them some thoughts on how to make use of the But not thoughts and prayers. Not thoughts and prayers. No, definitely not those. So uh, she said, yeah, all right. And they didn't really know what to expect. So I said to Eva, let me come and have a crack at the audience and I'll perhaps give some ideas that might help them to make the most of the day. And if I'm lucky, some of the speakers will be listening and perhaps they'll deliver something that's tangibly useful. And so I said, it's all your fault, because it is. And what I mean by that is that stop whining for someone else to fix everything. Like, don't just sit in the audience and go, "Mm, bloody hell, the government should fix this, because governments don't fix anything. And it's time for the industry to step forward. They're not going anywhere. The only thing they're, oh, they're so you are step the industry. is money. That's what they do. So, I'm But you not, are talking to the industry. Yeah. You, yeah, I mean, it's true. And, they're, and, they're, and the end, of course, it's their fault because they're the ones doing it. But all they're doing is selling us what we're buying. If we didn't buy it, they wouldn't sell it. So it's our fault, really. Everyone who buys anything, which is all of us, it's our fault. So that was my point there. And then I said, stop, because this is what really drives me crazy. People think... Oh, I'm, I've woken up, I'm going to do something good for the world. So they get their phone out and they look at Instagram, they like a few things. They think, well, right, there you go. I bloody well like that tweet. That shows them. I stand, And then they write, I stand with you. F*** off. I might have done it. Yeah, I stand with you. Anyone that writes, I stand with you. It's like, and I could be quite serious about it. I'm being facetious right now, but, but I'm desperately not. Like, I'm really very serious about everything I say. I don't say anything by accident, except for when I've had a couple of drinks. But, um... Like, don't stand. You don't stand with anybody. If you want to stand with someone, get off your couch and go out and stand next to them in whatever they're doing. You want to stand with them. That's what it means. It doesn't mean I sign a petition with you. Bollocks. And the other one that drives me double crazy is hashtag thoughts and prayers. And everyone knows that's bullshit. And but you also hate words like phrases, jargon, lean in. I do. I do hate hate jargon. Oh, ideate. Let's ideate. I've never even heard that. You know, because this is one bullshit marketing phrase. Right. It's not, it's just bullshit marketing. So your point was, cut through. My point was, be like Hemingway. When you finish writing something, take out all the words that nobody reads. 
Don't waste my time with words that I don't want to read because they're not beautiful. They don't add anything. They don't take you anywhere. Like read what, what Orwell said about writing. You know, when you finish writing something, ask yourself, am I actually telling the reader something they don't already know? And am I doing it in the most direct way? And am I doing it in an original way that's going to engage them? Because if you're not, you don't really have any business communicating in that form. And listen, not everyone's a brilliant writer. Of course they're not, nor are they great orators or anything like that. But at least think about what you're saying. Like if someone's going to give you the privilege of standing in front of them to speak on stage or something, think about what you're saying. Don't give me some recycled crap that I could see 58 different times. And you know how I learned that one? Because I gave a speech in China when I just started at Parsons and I went, I actually, I was in Tsinghua University and I gave two speeches, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, 50 people in the first one, 500 in the second one. And at the end of the second one, I've been talking about Parsons and this, I said, any questions? I thought I'd done all right. You know, I'm there. I'm like, this is all good. And this woman put her hand up at the back and bearing in mind, this was 2008 in China, which was not a big year for people being standing up and to be counted. And I said, you got a question? She said, yes, I have. I was there for the morning session as well. I said, oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for joining. She went, yeah, I feel like I've wasted the day. Ah! <laughs> and I said, oh, and that took the wind out of my sails. And I said, I mean, I'm very sorry. I, I, I honestly, and it was too serious. And she wasn't being mean. It took a lot of guts to stand up. And I wouldn't say that. So I said, why, why especially? And she said, well, because everything you've said, I could probably have found out about online. Oh, gosh. You know, you've talked about Parsons and what happens there and all that shit. It's all really interesting. But I didn't come to listen to that. I came to listen to you. And that was such a strong lesson. Here I am 10 years later, and it's with me every day. You know, I won't waste your time telling you something that you could hear somewhere else. I, I promise I won't. So what makes a good conference when you've delivered your speech and everyone else is going to stand up? Well, you know, that's one way of... But you can do that with gratuitous applause lines. It's really... I mean, I, I like to get a laugh. I like to get some applause. You know, like I'm this normal person. I'm an old ham. I like to get a response out of the audience. But it doesn't have to be that. I, I gave a speech in China about three weeks ago. I gave a whole series of them. And I remember one in particular in Guangzhou. And it was just managed really well. And because it was managed well, so all the staff, like I give all the staff uniforms and they were all there and they were all excited. And they weren't, it wasn't something they were used to. They'd not heard it all before. And there was an audience there, maybe 100 people. But because it had been managed well, because they thought about all the details, the expectation was really high. And so, you know, I can give a speech if I try really, really hard. So I did. And the audience were engaged and we just kind of locked in. And it was such a joy for me because I felt like everything I was saying, people were interested in. But what makes it good for the audience? Like, What makes That's it what good I mean. for people to come to the, for instance, Copenhagen Fashion Summit? And what do you think we want to take away from it? I mean, we want to take away some inspiration and some tools for action. Yeah, see, that's my big problem with conferences. And not Copenhagen, but in general, conferences are not very helpful. Oh, let me, actually, let's not be nearly negative. The reason I created Fashion Culture Design was because I wanted tangible ideas you could actually do something with. What is Fashion Culture Design? Fashion Culture Design, you know, those three things affect everything we do. Every single thing we do. You can't do anything without it having been affected by fashion, culture, or design. It just is. Because everything you touch, do, say, experience okay. is designed. True. We're all operating in one form of culture or another, and myriad other cultures affect what we're doing. So that's a given. And then fashion is another word. I'm not talking about dresses. Fashion is a word for what's popular right now. So those three things, that's it. You're in. It doesn't matter what you do. You can live in a cave. I don't care. It's still affecting you. So I felt, all right, so that's everything. 
And what I did was I, so I, when I left Parsons, I thought, am I going to bring all the smarty pants people I know together again? So I said, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask questions on stage of each panel and I'm going to curate the panel with, not with the same people who talk about their own business, but with people that I think have got something interesting to say about a topic that may not be their topic. Okay. So for example, the very first panel was, what does beauty look like now, now that it's not 32 skinny white girls on a runway? So I had Mickey Boardman moderate it, the uh, editorial director of a paper magazine, who's a beautiful, very opinionated, very smart guy who doesn't care. You know, he's, he's the first one to admit that he's fat and he loves it. He's very happy. Love that guy. I had Ivan, president of uh, IMG Models. I had James Scully, who you saw speaking today. Casting this is when director. He began his, yeah, he began his, pa- his passionate plea for models' rights. I had Ashley Graham, who was on the at the time was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. The inverted commas plus size. Exactly. Yes, yes. This now icon, but at the time, you know, certainly she was popular, but nothing like she is now. And I had Alec Weck, the Love Sudanese, Alec Weck. yeah, incredible Love. woman, incredible. And I had uh, Gillian Smith, who would cast, interestingly, some projects. She's a casting director like James, but she cast Chroma, etc. So she's oh, always Chroma, impressed. So interesting. Exactly, but she'd also she secretly told me she'd cast some political ads for people that we don't like. But she, we won't talk about that. Anyway, so I had them talking about what does beauty look like now, and it was fascinating, you know. And I said, I don't. I said to each of them, I don't want to hear about your career. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested. In what are we going to do? And of course, that gave rise to James beginning this impassioned plea for the rights of models and inequality, etc. Uh, and so that's why I created fashion culture design. Other topics would be creativity in the time of Trump or when will someone invent wearable tech that we actually need? <laughs> or, uh, Come is, on, is Google Glass that WeChat? DBF did. I know, I had a Google person on there. And every time I turn around, I'd be like, <laughs> Google Glass. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, was a dud. Them. Anyway, so back to the speech this morning. So I, what did I say? I did, um, oh, I did hate. That was the next one. So hate it's really, see, we lost the election in, in November 2016, whiny liberals like me, because we didn't talk to anybody. The US election, because yes, even yes, though you're yes. clearly a Brit from Bournemouth. It's true, I'm from Bournemouth. You've lived in the US in New York for 17 years. 20. All roads lead to Bournemouth, just in case you're wondering. What? They do. They definitely don't lead to Leeds, they lead to Bournemouth. They don't. I'd it? like to stick up for Leeds. It's a marvellous city. It's lo- Leeds is lovely, I'm sure. I, I expect it's a wonderful place. Back on track, Hate. You lost the election. Listen, I, I, we, and I, you know why because you lost the election? Because you talked only to those who already agreed with you. We did, exactly. And that's what conferences do. It drives me crazy. Like, there's a thousand of us in the room. Let me tell you something really nice that you're all going to go, oh, yes, well, I'll stand with you on that. Here's my thoughts and prayers. Shut up. Like, find somebody you don't agree with and engage with them. Obviously not a Russian robot or a troll. You can't argue with them. That's like arguing in the kitchen sink. But find somebody who's got... A, you, know, you know Trump supporters, right? A lot of them wish they could have got jobs. And we didn't really talk to them. And everyone says to them, oh, we'll get you a job, we'll help you. But they didn't get one. And I, I respect President Obama more than perhaps anyone alive right now. And, you know, his government didn't really help them particularly. I'm sure he tried, but it, the Republicans wouldn't let him. What you said about that, about find someone who disagrees with you, find someone, you said you hate to be provocative, but, you know, find someone who doesn't share your opinion. You said find someone who doesn't agree with you and try and change their minds. And... That's something obvious, but in sustainability circles, that's not what we do. I frequently sit on stages or talk to groups of people or accept the praise from people who enjoy listening to me say things that they agree with. The many, I'm sure. <laughs> Millions. But that is a real problem that we have, preaching to the converted. It's pointless. 
It's point every word you say. And why do we do it? So that we feel because, vindicated and valorised and because we don't think about like people. Oh. See, I, I give all these speeches... But you know what? I don't no, think listen. we do it just because of ego. I think we no, do we it don't. because... I think I was going to say to feel vindicated. That's not why I do it. I do it because they're the people who turn up. Exactly. I was going to say, you know, you're on the stage at Copenhagen, you're speaking to the people in the room. You can't speak to the people who are not in the room, but you have to go out and find them. That's the thing. Like, my last point was do something. Go out, find people, or invite them in. But I'm going to speak to Eva about next year because I think we should invite some right-wingers. When I hosted FCD the second year... I realised that it was post November 16, so I thought, well, I got that wrong. But better, better fix this. So I, <laughs> oh, no. so I brought a, uh, someone I like very much. So sorry, just to understand, you do this regularly. Well, I thought I did it annually, but then I realised I don't like doing anything too regularly. So I, I decided. Oh, like your podcast, you do it when you want to. Exactly. I know I do it when the time is right. So if I, I for 2017 FCD, I had a co-host, Fox News financial reporting Republican. She's also passionate about fashion. She's a very intelligent woman. She's not an idiot. She's not a Trump supporter. But she's very smart and uh, she's conservative. And I have deep respect for her. I don't agree with her on everything, but I've got deep respect for her. And so she was my co-host. Particularly in, obviously, political spheres, but in sustainability as we're talking about fashion. I think this is one of our problems, isn't it? It's really... Is it because when we're addressing very divisive issues... I mean, what is it? What is it that stops us from talking more broadly to the people who are not echoing our I'll tell ideas? you what it is, right? I heard it a couple of times. It's really hard. It's really hard to do this. Like, oh, I heard someone say that on the, two of the panels today and it drove me mad. I'm like, you know what's hard? Drinking Listening water. Listening to you. <laughs> yeah, right. Drinking water that's been polluted by dye. That's quite hard. Or washing your kid in it. Or working 60 hours a week and not making a living wage. That's hard. Trying to engage with people you don't agree with, that's not hard. You're just lazy if you don't do it. And you have to do it. You have to get stuck in. Because otherwise, what do you expect to happen? I cannot convince you of anything because we already agree. Mm. What's the point of that? Mm -hmm. So you've got to find somebody. And I'm not saying go out and, you know, go to Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park so how do and we do it, pick a fight. As, we, as you said, we talk get to on. people in the room. So if all you do is stare at your phone, all right. Stare at your phone, but don't like, engage, write. When you see something, make a nice comment that disagrees. And you'll probably get a ton of trolls hating you. That's fine. Deal with it. But you might find one person that you have a chat with. And what I love is if you look at... Uh, Chelsea Clinton's great at this. Chelsea Clinton is... And I don't really know very much about her. I follow her on Twitter. She's frequently saying... Actually, that's not what I said. I said this, but have a great day anyway. She's always generous. She's always gracious. And she disagrees. And often you'll see someone say, actually, I did look it up. And you're right. You didn't say that. And you know what she did then? She gave someone a glimpse into the other side's argument. And that's what we have to do. And, and you know, and when Hillary said there are a basket of deplorables, she was right. But it didn't help. Because they don't think they're deplorable. Talking of deplorable, do you think that fashion is in a deplorable state? Do you think that we have a crisis that needs to be addressed around sustainability? You said you were passionate about it, but you weren't the expert. I'm not encumbered by any actual knowledge of it. <laughs> well, people, and I was thinking about this today, I'm fed up with people, two of the many things that annoy me. One is that people don't take fashion seriously. Still, I know, still, I agree. Still, and I, I was at a, a, an event. Even though fashion culture design touches everything. They don't take it seriously. And, and you know, I, I saw the mayor of Bill de Blasio, who I quite like, and he gave a speech and he went, oh, I, I don't know anything about, um, I'm doing Prince Charles. He said, <laughs> I don't know anything about uh, fashion. My wife buys my ties. And I thought, how dare you? 
Fashion is a massive industry in New York. It's possibly the second biggest industry in New York besides banking. I suspect if the room was full of banking, you wouldn't have said, oh, I don't know anything about banking. My wife writes the checks. No, you wouldn't. People trivialise fashion when it's a massive employer. But here's the other point that, I, that annoys me. People keep referring to fashion as if it's the other. It's not the other, it's us. We're all fashion. If you buy clothes, you are fashion. Mm. Don't blame them, it's you. Mm. You bought it. You're part of the industry. But my question was, do you think we're having a crisis when it comes to sustainability? That's like saying, do we have a human crisis? <laughs> That's my point. Is it a crisis of humanity? Because you can't... Someone said today, oh, well, I can give you a thing that will mean you only have to produce 40% as many clothes. So 60% of what you're making is no good, so you won't have to make that anymore. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Because what are 60% of the fashion workforce globally going to do mm. if you start doing it? Mm. What's going to happen to them? They're going to die? I've been to so many villages around the world which rely on that one factory. It's the livelihood for the entire village. You take that away, what are you, what are you going to do? Go into a call centre? Okay. From your vantage point of having been in positions of great power and responsibility at Parsons, for example, and working with brands for years... I'm just, I wouldn't dream of describing anything I've ever done as having great power and responsibility. Come on, you've got great power and responsibility when you're shaping students' futures. You do, you do have a responsibility, I'll give you that. You do. Power is, isn't... I mean, especially when it comes to students. Students are really smart. Anyone listening to this, if you ever have the chance to go into a university or a school or anything and speak to students, I implore you to do it. Not because they need you, because they almost certainly don't, but because you will benefit. I promise you, I, to I say promise, that. you will walk out of that room smarter than when you went in. And you may think, oh, I'll, I'll go and speak to the students. Nah, shut up, you're not that interesting. But go and learn from them. Today at the summit, the students presented their reactions according to the two sustainable development goals from the UN that they were focusing on. One was gender. A group of 114 students stood on that stage and some of them had the terrifying, I think, job of standing up and delivering their speech in front of the princess. Ooh, God, they were good. Posh. They were so inspiring. Yeah. And they pulled no punches. Mm. But, you know, they did. They stood up and they said... We demand, I think that's the phrasing they're given, but mm. we demand that the industry is more transparent. We demand that you shape a future that is all about diversity and equality. It was really good stuff mm. and it was delivered with a lot of passion and I watched it and I did actually want to cry. I love crying at students. But I thought, as I always do when I see young, unsullied by <laughs> negativity and experienced minds, imagining what their future might be, I always feel like a great sense of, hope and I think actually we're all right because the next generation are going to do it better my question to you is from your experience shaping education at Parsons and New School which you did for all that time do you think that we're going to see a lot of change because the next generation have got a better view in a word yes we can't uh, say no can you well I could I, you know how contrary I like mm. to be but I 100% unequivocally agree with that the only thing we have to do is get out of the way there's this smug, middle-aged, established bullshit point of view, which is we have to teach them, you know. No, you don't. Just shut up and get out of the way. En enable them by stepping to the side. They don't need your help. They just need you to get out of the way. And, you know, we, in North America, we're trapped with this infrastructure and these means of production, which have been established for, you know, 50 to 100 years, and they're not really evolving. Europe's even worse, because it's been, you know, established for 200 years. And so, while the course innovation goes on, and it's wonderful, I don't think it's, I'm not looking to the future of innovation to either of those places. When I go to China, I see 
the openness to do anything. Not always good, definitely not always good, but the openness to learn, which is fantastic. There's a, there's a massive desire for knowledge there, which I frankly don't feel to the same extent in other countries. Uh, that much may just be because nobody wants to learn from me, but uh, you can judge that. But uh, there's also the, the means of creativity. There's the means of production, which they are passionate about changing and building brand new. And listen, I'm not naive to all the problems they have in that part of the world, definitely. But I'm also not naive to the problems we have in Europe and in the US. So, you know, we all, none of us can really cast the first stone. What do you think today's fashion students need in their arsenal to make it in today's global fashion system and context? I think it would be wonderful for students to see the demise of many of our dinosaur institutions, frankly. Because I tell you why, right? Like I, I know this. I'm not going to tell you which. What kinds of institutions? Oh, media and retail and okay. infrastructure type institutions. Not all of them. Some of them are incredible. And I, listen, I come from England, right? You know this. When we were young, there was the Face magazine. Oh, I meant to mention that earlier. FCD is the Face magazine out of my head. Because when I, when I created FCD, you I realised... Paul Gorman's book about the face? Yeah. But I've already got all the Face magazine, so I didn't really need it. But... It's like when I created FCD, I realized that's all the things in my head. I, w- I want to know the answer to all those because they're just going on. Then I realized, oh, my God, my head is experiencing the face magazine because that was culture and fashion and music and politics and all those other things all together because that's what we cared about. And then so the students, so my, the reason I believe in students uh, for millions of reasons, but one specific example was when I first started at Parsons, someone came to my office and said, quick, you've got to come to this class right now because you, you need to see what's happening. So I went down, it was a menswear design class, 20 kids in the class, and the brief two weeks before had been design a menswear collection, do it on a piece of paper, present it, so the, and make teams. So these three guys have got together, and there's very few guys in Parsons, they got together, they designed the collection on paper. They'd also made most of the garments, which was not part of the project. Really? And they'd made labels to go in the back necks of all of them. And they'd got a model, and they'd shot pictures of all of it. And they'd made those pictures into a lookbook so you could actually peruse the looks. And they'd made a TV commercial <laughs> on video and they'd photoshopped that sold it into Times Square. And I said to them, this is amazing. Why'd you do this? And they sort of looked at me like, why wouldn't we? They didn't understand why you wouldn't do that because they could. Mm. You know, 10 years ago, you couldn't have used your iPhone to that degree, mm. but you could now. So what do students need to make it? Is it about... Is it ingenuity? Is it understanding of the tools available? Is it, you said, we need well, some institutions to fall apart before they can yeah, make their own? No. So in my candid estimation, I, I wouldn't presume to tell students what they need to make it right, but I'll give you my thoughts on it. Bizarrely, they need to learn from people who've been around for a while, which is a direct contradiction to what I just said, but I'm very conscious of that because there isn't that much that's new in the world in my experience, you have all these new means of production and communication, etc. but none of it's really new. It's just a thing. You know, it's just like a new toy. Tech's new. You know, yeah, but it's, it's only tech. It's only a tool. The thing that you get out of the end of it is not that new. Okay. So here we are having a chat. We could have been having a chat and writing it down for a newspaper 200 years ago. Okay. It's not really that different, you know. So I think that, of course, Mentors many, many things, then. They need mentors. Many things have changed. Yeah, yeah. Or as mentors is probably not a word you like. I can't stand it. <laughs> I've never been one, never had one. People sometimes use the word around me, but I, I always try to avoid it. But you, you definitely should listen. And like, do what I do. So I tell you where I got smart advice from. Hemingway, Shakespeare, Sartre, <laughs> and Love Actually. And Britney <laughs> Spears. Britney Spears. Um, and I can tell you why. And I've used them in my speeches. So Britney Spears, oops, I did it again. 
consistency in everything that you do. If you're not consistent, you're only as good as the worst thing you ever did. Love Actually, when Tommy Lee Jones plays the American president, he turns to the prime minister, Hugh Grant, and he says, I'll give you anything you want. And then pauses, then he says, as long as it's something I want to give you. It's brilliant. It's like management. Oh, and also, how about this one? Jamie Oliver teaching five-year-olds to eat vegetables. It's brilliant. What he did was he said to them, 35 kids in a class, he went, who wants to eat vegetables? And 25 put their hands up. He went, oh, go on then. In that, in that room over there, there's some games in there. You 10, who's prepared to try them? <laughs> five of them are like, yeah. He goes, go on then, you go and join. You five, they're like, no, no. That would have been me, no. He said, all right, well, you stay in here. There's some toys. You guys just have fun in here. If you ever want to come in there, you're very welcome. You just have to try the vegetables. <laughs> but it's up to you. You don't have to. Of course, within 10 minutes, the fun in there had them all going in. That's what you do. Anyway, so that, and then you've got, you know, Sartre and, and Marcus Aurelius saying, ask of each thing what it is in, in and of itself, which goes back to my dislike for buzzwords. You know, it is what it is, which is what the existentialist said. Don't give it a trendy name and think it means it's something new because it isn't. Where did this come from in you? You mentioned Mickey Boardman before. I listened to that podcast. Yeah. He's great, isn't he? But he said, and I liked it a lot, that he had no obvious ambition or career path idea. He just envisaged the lifestyle he wanted. I liked it. I wondered That's if nice. you were like that when you were a student. No, well, I'll tell you why I what got into like fashion. In Bournemouth. Bournemouth is the, is the key, you see. When I was. I don't think anyone's ever said that before. Bournemouth is the key. They probably haven't, have they? <laughs> or is the, isn't it the nightclub capital of the South now? What were you like as a student? When I was 12 years old, let me start, go back a little bit before that. When I was 12 years old, I went to the Town Hall Disco in Bournemouth. and uh, What do you wear? That's the key. I was wearing, and it, it only struck me afterwards to analyse what it was, some needle cords in black, which Lovely. were quite slim fit. I don't remember what footwear I was wearing. Probably Dunlop Green Flash. And a light blue, sky blue possibly, Wrangler sweatshirt with Wrangler on the front of it. And, uh, and at the time there was a yeah. very big mod thing. What year was it? It would have been 79? Yep. And uh, so it was a bit sort of new wavy. I, was, I should have really had DMs with it, but you know. Anyway, a girl kissed me. Yes. Proper, proper snog. Needle cords. Proper snog. That was it. Afterwards, I said, why'd she do that to her friends? Obviously, I couldn't talk to her, to her friends. And they said, oh, she liked the way you were dressed. I'm like, that's it. My career <laughs> path is set. And I'm actually not kidding. So after that, you know, and I, I sort of already loved fashion, dressing up, and it was very important You're to me. You're only 12? Yeah. Where'd it come from? I just did. But did it come from music? I just liked Looking it. around got, at... I don't know. I, I've got pictures of me, you know, and I dressed up and I liked it. What were your parents like? Dad was a car dealer. Mum was house cleaner, cleaned houses. My were dad was dapper? very sharp. Was when he... he was younger, he was very sharp. And my mum was very sharp. But by the time I came around, you know, it's the 70s and they, they weren't really that bothered, I guess. I, I, I don't have any abiding memory about my parents' fashion. What's your next memory that has a fashion pathway? Because it's such a door opener, isn't it, to culture and to well, music I, and to people? When I went to school, in secondary school, grammar school, there was a uniform. Are you showing you're clever now? We, well, yeah, but clever, but not posh. Then, oh, oh, that's terrible. Not, I'm definitely not posh now. Fine now. That's like a, I was hoist by my own petard there, uh, wasn't I? Uh, anyway, so I, I got a suit, but I didn't want to wear the school suit, so I got a different one. And my mum took it in for me, so it was really skinny. Yeah. And then I wore the tie the wrong way around, so the skinny bit was out, and I tucked the fat end in, and I wore a tie clip. And the thing was, the teachers got really annoyed because I wasn't wearing the official uniform, but because I was poor, which I was, you, you were all right if you sort of couldn't afford the real suit, even though mine cost about as much. But I also was very smart. 
So it wasn't like I looked scruffy. So they'd look at me and go, Collins, that's not really correct, is it? I'd say, sorry, sir. No, it's the only suit I have, sir. <laughs> and they'd say, mm, all right then. And that was it. So, you know, it was, it, fashion was always my thing. Always. When did you understand that you could be a fashion student? Well, I had a friend, Anna DeLuca, and she went to former fashion school, age 16, because you could do that then. And uh, I was the year below her, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a chef or something. I didn't know what it was, but I just thought, that sounds like a laugh, I'll do that. And uh, she said, well, go to fashion school. And I, I honestly, I didn't know how the fashion business worked. I didn't really know what designers meant. I that, love these was. stories, because I think when you're a kid, of course, you don't know this. I didn't know, It's no. an extraordinary thing to do, so actually. I went, yeah, so I went to fashion school, and I managed to... I'm not very good at drawing. I'm not, I think I'm not a very good designer, How'd actually. How'd you get in? Just because you had great I clothes. Know, I was just into it. And listen, I've, I've But actually to... then maybe there was more of an openness and idea that, yeah, come and be artistic. Well, I think there is, though. I think there is now in Parsons. Like, at Parsons, we never said you have to have a perfect portfolio. That's the... I won't say that's the last thing we wanted, but definitely wasn't high up on the list. We want someone that cares. Someone that's got a passion for it. Someone that's genuine. Someone that thinks about why they're doing something. That's lovely to hear. I mean, it's I genuine. imagine that it's actually hyper-competitive and you need to be ticking a lot of commercial boxes. It is, with... but listen, you show up with a super, super, like, perfect professional portfolio and that's not necessarily a good sign because we don't know if you did it or not. When you rocked up there, what did you find? I showed up. I mean, I was pretty well into fashion by then. I was 16 years old. So the first project we did... This is, I'm loving this conversation. The first project we did this is no word of a lie, was make an A-line skirt, right? Or a pencil skirt. But you must have not even I known what I made it for myself. Did you? Yeah. And because it was that... And the, the that issue was the, of the face. That issue of the face, the Ray Petrie-style buffalo image with the guy wearing the yeah. dinner jacket, the Union Jack over his shoulder, and a kilt, I know it. white socks and loafers, which I actually wrote an article on because I love that, that issue so much. I made a skirt and I wore it. When we talk about the face... It was so important, wasn't it, in terms of access, in terms of inspiration. Yeah. I work in magazines. I've worked in magazines for 20 years, but commercial magazines, we've actually lost that ability to have... Completely It's gone it. because yeah. commerce has taken over and polished everything up. I mean, yeah. I work for a polished publication anyway. Yeah. But the indie magazines aren't what they were, are they? That was such a... So many people I speak to who are in fashion, one of the entry points was a magazine like The Face yeah, or like ID. Because or it, was, it was social commentary and cultural commentary and Or fashion. even 60 stuff like Nova, I don't know. But those things were... Yeah, yeah. And I don't... The one thing I hate is people... And I make well, sure not I the one thing this. you hate because there's loads of That's things true. you hate. That's well, true. One of the many things Another I hate. Another one of the things I hate. Is, and it's usually things I do. But uh, it's when people say, oh, it's not like it used to be. We haven't got that anymore. Like, you know what? I'm guilty of like that, that, but I, I am guilty no, of that because I'm quite 60s now. obsessed. Like, guess what? We, like, haven't, we haven't got, got the Face magazine, but I've got a phone. Yeah. Look at that. I can, find, I can watch every episode of and The actually, Face on my phone. If you're a young person starting out, you can make media without having to raise yeah. money. Yeah. So shut up. So I also, not you, but generally, yeah. that's one of the first things my son said. He's two. Shut up. <laughs> Can I just um, leap forward to say, what is it you actually do? And no, could you please... No, can't you look it up? It's too hard to explain. I'm kidding. No, because uh, all I want you to do is tell the listener, the Steve, listener, Steve, what right, your Steve. daughter thinks you do, your 11-year-old oh, daughter. So, so, my, <laughs> yeah. so when I was the dean, right, I had to do a lot of speeches. I do them all the time. And then I launched Fashion Culture Design. And uh, my daughter, <laughs> who is just my idol... Uh, I said to her, you know what daddy does, don't you? And she was like, oh, yeah, dad, you know. I said, well, what is it then? Thinking, oh, you know, I gave a big, like the FCD, it was this big conference, you know. She went, and she was in the kitchen, and she's like, she stood there, and she sort of put her hands to one side and went, 
blah, 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 fashion. And then she said to the left and went, blah, 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 culture, blah, 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 design. And I'm like, oh my God, is that what you think I do? Just stand there going, blah, 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 fashion, blah, 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 culture. Was she not right? There's nothing like an 11-year-old to cut down right, your dreams. the mouth of babes. The thing is, right, I spent all this time as a designer and then a dean and then running fashion culture design, but it struck me that I wasn't sharing all this intel widely enough. All these amazing people I get to talk to and I wanted to share it. I wanted to spread my gospel of design to everybody. So I launched We Design, and that's my new baby, wedesign.org. It's a way for me to take the best design education and share it with anybody around the world, whether it's in a one-on-one video class, which we do all year, or whether it's in a summer program, which we come to you for, or whether it's executive ed or any of the other new things we're coming up with. But it's something that I'm really passionate about because with WeDesign, I can really reach people that I couldn't otherwise reach because I don't believe that fashion or design education, this is all of design, design education should be the preserve of the few that can either afford it or move to London or New York or one of the other centres to learn. I believe you should get that anywhere that you are. It's very expensive to study fashion these days too. It's very expensive. And my mission with We Design is, you know, we have programmes that are quite expensive. Yes, we do. But you're getting such intense tuition that it really equates to studying at one of the best design schools anyway. But we're also working on ways to share it for free. Fab? It's really important for me that people can understand design because it makes life better. How did you get from fashion school to where you went? So you moved to New York how many years ago? 20 so uh, 21 now so I, I, my, the brief history is that I was in London I went to fashion school in Bournemouth then I went to fashion school in London and when I, it was great when I went to fashion school you didn't have to do any work that wasn't the point you went to Taboo you were I supposed was about to, to say get that we wasted. talk about Taboo yeah exactly I didn't know that you went there but I'm quite fascinated by that whole concept oh I've heard on this podcast Stephen Jones really Stephen's yeah. fantastic and I greatly love the I wasn't there but the pictures you just look at people's clothes and how so, you do you know Steve Strange all that but how you make you make stuff out of Lee nothing. Lee Bowery, oh my God. Lee show, Bowery. We used to show up, we used to, no, we, on Thursday night, we'd go to Leicester Square and Australian. go to Taboo. Yeah, you're right, yeah. And uh, Trojan was on the door, and I don't know how, I think we were just like the snotty kids from fashion school that they let in, because they didn't look that great. But, I mean, I tried, but it definitely wasn't cool. But they, we got in, and we'd be there, and George Michael would be dancing to George Michael. Uh, you know, Lee Bowery would be there. He was lovely. He would say hello to anybody, and you're like, oh, cool. There's a, you know, um, a clip from... I want to say the clothes show of Lee Bowery. Yeah. And he's being interviewed in something like Claridge's and it's high tea. Have you seen it? Oh, I haven't, good. but I can imagine it's it. It's so good. It was spectacular. And I knew people on the periphery of that world. For listeners who aren't aware of Lee Bowery, how would you sum him up? Well, I'm not going to do it. I almost don't want to try and sum it up. You have to look him up. L-E-I-G-H-B-O-W-E-R-Y. Because you have Lee to see Barry, him. Yeah, you have to see him because he was he was performance art. That's what he was. He was Comme de Garçon before Comme de Garçon. performance art, yeah. And he was gorgeous and wonderful and gregarious and vivacious and completely bizarre. Like, you, there's no way of, of, of adequately describing how he looked. He was entire, he was body. So, all right, so I'll try. So it was like a full body suit, shaved head. He would drip but wax on his head. changing the shape of the body. Yeah, changing it like wearing, like impossible and to from wear. from actual top of the scalp to yeah, bottom yeah. of the shoe. Wax dropped on top of his head. In a colour, like with massive clown lips, and, a, and and everything I say is doing a disservice I to know. the glory. I we can't. Lit. Words I mean, don't work. He was a work of art. He was literally a work of art. But and for it, you, as a fashion kid, to be around that and to see that as a visual oh stimulus, God. and and it was, I had that, and then I had Blue Rondo and a Turk, 
which was the other extreme, which was the coolest people in town wearing these zoot suits. It was a band, Chris Sullivan and, and, and uh, okay. Christos Toleros. Yeah. And it was like this really cool sort of Latin jazz London band. And so we'd go and see them. And then I'd go to Total Fashion Victims on a Tuesday night at the WAG with Stephen Linnard. And, and so, the first fashion show you ever saw was Body Map. Body Map. Yeah, right. Look at you, did your homework. Yeah, so we used to, I was a snotty little kid at fashion school, so we'd go to Chelsea Barracks where it was and we'd sneak in to see all the shows. And all the buyers would be like, oh yeah, oh come on, come with me, it's okay kid. But that was also wonderful that Fashion Week allowed well, you to get yeah, in and you didn't, if you had the right And you didn't have to do any outfit. work at college either, because they, they wanted you to do some work. But it didn't really matter if you didn't do that much, because it was about the culture and the mm. life and the, mm. you know, the absorbing London. And, you know, and I, I frankly, I struggled at Parsons with the amount of work we'd give the students because... No time for going out yeah. and being creative and I, in I your headgear. I wrote a book about Parsons at some point and uh, I interviewed a load of, uh, all the alumni, all the noted alumni like Jason Wu and Donna Karen and people like that. And, you know, from the sort of 60s through the 70s, no one did any work. And in the 80s, they didn't do a lot of work, but they had to start doing some. And then by the 90s, it was really, really hard. You know, and when I got there in 2007, it was two or three full nights a week. You had to stay up all night. Coming back to that original question, which was what does it take for a fashion student to succeed? Or what is it that fashion students need now to make it in this, I'm not going to say well, brave new world, thing, frightening, speedy world? The first thing you've got to do is know that if there's anything else you could be doing, you should go and do it. Because you have to be doing fashion because it's the only thing you can do. You have to. You, because it's too hard. And the, the results, I think, are glorious. Not the success one could have if you're lucky, but, but just the, I love the industry. The people are great. Look at us sitting here in a music room in Copenhagen. The reason why I loved fashion was the people. So it's access to people. It's not what people think. People think about magazines. Oh, you get to go to a Chanel event and it's... You get to fly business class, which, by the way, economy these days, let's face it. But that is not why. It's people, it's the access. You get to meet extraordinary people and you get to have extraordinary conversations. Yeah. And everyone, everyone, or maybe not the suits who are paying the money, but everyone in fashion is creative with an amazing story. It's lovely. That's so why I like people. it. Yeah. It's and very listen, inspiring. There's a load of awful people and a load of oxygen thieves, the ones who just exist in a company and try and shoot you down. But, but you most of the people I've met are the survive, people that tell yeah. you about these stories that get you yeah. excited, that can so lead you on to the next people. bit. It's great. I love it. And I'm, you know, and there's this endless merry-go-round around the world of all these different people. And, you know, I have friends in every city now. But fashion was also always, and I would love to know if you think it still is, a magnet for and a haven for kooks. Unusual, creative yeah. people who could come and well, it find themselves everybody. and be themselves. Like you, when I got to fashion school, I'm like, wow, this is great. You can do whatever you want and it's all good. And that's what you want. That's what's supposed to and Life should be like that. Cult, you know, it's what like I was... Um, the whole, you know, Me Too movement, which is was so desperately of needed, and you know, racial diversity and gender diversity, etc. You know, I, this is going to sound really naive, but I mean, no apology for it. I have not come across that because I work in an industry which is dominated correctly by women, and it, we don't see any. Uh, I mean, can you imagine? Oh, good, I'm glad. I know we're running out of time, but I'm so glad we can have a scrap now. What a lot of. This industry is not dominated by women. This industry is run by men. Well, all I can tell you is that at Parsons, 90% of the students are female. And wherever I've worked, it's practically all women. So, yes, you're right. There's men in positions of leadership disproportionately. It's always a man in charge. Disproportionately. There are very few top editors that are the women in charge. It's the man in charge. The men are even the designers. And the men are cutting the checks. And the men are the photographers. And the men are still in charge. 
It's true. And there needs to be a better balance. There definitely does. And when it's not but men, it's, it's not white, white women. I, you know, I, I'm not sure I know enough about it to, mm. to get angry about that, although I'm sure it is the case. Um, but, but, this but you is haven't not, witnessed the... Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'll spout off about most things, but I try to at least have some degree of exposure to it before I make a sweeping generalisation. Yeah, but you've it. worked in fashion all this time. You must have noticed that My it's... experience is that, of course, gay people are the backbone of the industry, thank God. And my experience is I've, I'm always... Let me put it another way. I've spent my whole life surrounded by women. Yeah, That's all right. I can tell you. It is true that in magazines there's hardly... Occasionally, there'll be one straight guy who's the sub-editor it's the best. sitting you know angrily what? in so, the corner. So how about this, right? When, when I went to fashion school, my dad, who was a car dealer, his mates were like, oh, that's a bit puffy, isn't it, going to fashion school? And I'd be like, hang on a minute, you're a greasy mechanic working with a bunch of men. And I work with women all day. And the only other men there are gay. So... Which one of us has got it right here? <laughs> Ridiculous. So yeah, I'm I'm one of the not that many straight men in fashion, and I love it. I'm completely. I, you know, my ex-wife was lovely. I met her through work, and my now partner is um, wonderful. And I uh, met her through a work exp- a work party, etc. So, and they're both far above my level. I should never have had any chance with either of them. Fashion gave you that in ever true. since you got a snog because of your cords. It's true. So it's all about that. I want to wrap this interview up because we're running out of time by asking for some, I know you're going to hate it, but I'm asking you anyway, for some words of wisdom. What advice would you give to fashion students listening to this interview, perhaps thinking, wish I was out in a nightclub with Lee Bowery, <laughs> and perhaps thinking, hang on a minute, she kept asking you what the secret to my success is, and all he said was, listen to some old dudes, but there's no such thing as a mentor and you need to ruin all the institutions and then make your own. All right, kids, here's the thing, right? Here's the message from your Uncle Simon. What drives me mad is people who whine about stuff they haven't got. Don't worry about what you haven't got. Don't worry about what you can't get. Don't worry about what isn't there for you. Ask yourself, what can I do? What's possible for me? If you've got a phone, which I suspect you probably have, you can make movies, you can take pictures, you can start a business, you can run your business from your phone. So none of those things are excuses. So if you've got an actual idea, and it's really an idea, it's genuine, it's genuine, ask yourself, or even better, ask a bunch of other people, what do you think of this? Because you have to be concerned about what people hear, not what you say. So listen to people telling you what they hear about what you're doing, and then use the things you can do to make the most of that. And don't, I don't want to hear anybody complaining about, oh, we haven't got this, we haven't got that. Shut up, I'm not interested in that. What can you do? You can do a lot. It's been a joy. I've loved your music room, even though it was silent. I know. It's wonderful, isn't it? I'll Thanks. put a record on now. Let's cheers for the tape. Cheers. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I told them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that.
love you because I love you because I love you.